X-Ray. Welcome to The Local, your daily dose of hometown news and democracy. I'm Jefferson Smith from Portland, Oregon. It is Wednesday, November 11th, Veterans Day and Armistice Day. Gratitude to all who have served in all of the ways. Today, back in the day, November 11th, 1873, the first annual reunion of sons and daughters of Oregon pioneers was held. In 1873, many of the early immigrants that settled in the Lamette Valley and other valleys in the Oregon Territory wanted to organize a heritage association to collect pioneer reminiscences, document the early history of the territory, gather material for an archive. After several meetings, the Oregon Pioneer Association was established October 18, 1873. Francois Xavier Mathieu, native of Terrebonne, Canada, was the president, and J.W. Graham was vice president. Their first reunion? Held in Butteville today, back in the day, November 11, 1873. Sons and daughters of American pioneers, living descendants of the pioneers, mountain people, missionaries, and adventurers who arrived and settled in the Oregon country. This group is now located in Portland, and they uphold the mission to memorialize those who founded the civil and military governments of Oregon and Washington. It's now a nonprofit, and they work to preserve and restore historic pioneer-related sites in Washington and Oregon. Today, back in the day, November 11, 1831, Nat Turner was hanged for inciting a slave rebellion. Nat Turner was an African-American slave and preacher who was born into slavery in 1800. He led a rebellion of enslaved and free black people in Southampton, Virginia. Nat was known for his intelligence. He would read and preach the Bible to fellow slaves who called him the prophet. He believed he was destined for a higher purpose and awaited a sign from God that it was time to slay his enemies with their own weapons. So when the sun appeared bluish-green on August 31, 1831, likely due to an eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington, Nat took it as a sign. The rebellion lasted four days and Nat evaded capture for six weeks while local militias killed an estimated 120 African Americans. When time came for his execution, he said, Was Christ not crucified? Today, back in the day, November 11, 1889, Washington became a state. The state was named after the United States' first president, George Washington, of course. It's made up of the Washington Territory, ceded by the British in 1846. It is the 18th largest and 13th most populous state. It remains a leading lumber producer and one of the wealthiest and most socially liberal states. It's now home to 11 Fortune 500 companies. Of course, Amazon, the company with the second highest valuation in the world. Also, Costco, Microsoft, Starbucks. The state tree is the western hemlock, not to be confused with the hemlock that killed Socrates. The state fruit is the apple. The state song is Washington, my home, not to be confused with Oregon, my Oregon, or titles of state songs, my titles of state songs. The marine mammal, the orca. Prior to European exploration and colonization, the region was inhabited by the Yakima, Duwamish, and Spokane tribes, and many others. A reminder that we profit off of stolen land. Today, we'll start with your Quick 6 News headlines and an interview with local author Vanessa Vaselka. X-Ray. First up, it is time for today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. Representative Janelle Bynum is mounting a leadership challenge against House Speaker Tina Kotek. Earlier this week, Representative Janelle Bynum made phone calls to other members of the Democratic Caucus, promoting herself as a potential new leader for the Oregon House. On Monday, she released a statement saying, and I'm quoting this year, is called into question whether we can continue with the status quo. Her push for leadership change follows a disappointing showing for Democrats in the 2020 election where Republicans flipped at least one seat in the state house. By the way, one of those seats on the Oregon coast, Democrats spent $1.3 million in an Oregon house race. It wasn't long ago when a campaign budget for a house seat would be about five grand. 
It also follows concerns with Kotek's handling of misconduct allegations against Representative Diego Hernandez. Kotek called Hernandez to resign before an investigation into those allegations was complete. Bynum and other members of the BIPOC caucus contributed to Hernandez's re-election campaign. He won with 49.5% of the vote with third-party candidate Ashton Simpson coming in second. Kotek has made it clear she will seek to continue to be speaker. Here's her quote. We have a huge amount of work to do on behalf of Oregonians, and I'm ready to bring my experience to bear and get things done. So far, it's unclear how much support Representative Bynum will receive from other House members. Representative Rob Nose has voiced his support for keeping Kotek as speaker. Here's his quote. I don't think right now is the time to switch up our leadership. People want to understand how this works. Shortly after an election, there's a leadership vote. That means usually the week or two after the election, there are a bunch of phone calls that happen between people who are seeking leadership positions, things like speaker and majority leader and whip and assistant majority leader, and they have a vote. And it's not very ceremonial. They do it in a little room, usually in the caucus conference room on the third floor. And they vote until there's a majority. And then once a majority of the governing caucus wins, now Democrats have a majority of the legislature, so a majority of Democrats make their decision. Then they all go down to the floor later on when they organize the chamber for the most important vote anybody will cast during that session. And that vote is the vote to organize the chamber. Who's going to be speaker? And the speaker makes up the committees, and the committees decide what bills even get a hearing, much less a vote. Tina Kotek rose in her position when she took on Mary Nolan, and then when she ran against then-Speaker Dave Hunt. And now Tina Kotek has a challenge of her own. We'll know soon how it turns out. Your daily dose of coronavirus data, OHA reporting 771 new cases. We've been staying well above 500, between 500 and 1,000 a day. It's up 48 cases from Monday. It ends a three-day streak of decreasing cases, also bringing our total cases to almost 52,000. Three new deaths reported yesterday, bringing the state's death toll to 737. Of those 771 new cases, 151 in Multnomah County, 110 in Clackamas, 95 in Washington County, that about tracks the ratio of the population percentage in the Tri-County area relative to the Oregon population. The state's two-week pause on social gatherings remains in effect. Governor Brown made a statement on Tuesday asking Oregonians to do their part to prevent further spread, saying that hospitals are at risk of getting overwhelmed by new cases. And here's her quote, it's not too late to do the right thing. Nike contributed over one-third of the funds used to defeat the metro transportation tax. It was a $4 billion measure aimed to improve metro area transportation, expand light rail down to southeast Portland. The campaign to prevent that measure, called Stop the Metro Wage Tax, received most of its $2.66 million from businesses. Their payrolls would have been hit by the 0.75% tax. Not 7.5, 0.75 to be clear. The S campaign was outspent about two and a half times to one. They raised and spent about $1.17 million. And to defeat it, Nike spent just about a million bucks, $914,000. The Metro tax ended up being one of the few measures to fail on the November ballot, losing by eight points. After its defeat, Metro Council President Lynn Peterson said, safe, reliable transportation remains a regional challenge that we must address together. I think that's code for they're going to try something again. This time, I suspect Nike will be in the negotiations and that million dollars bottom a place at the table. Suspect involved in August viral video assault has been sentenced to 20 months in prison. 26-year-old Marquise Love pled guilty to assault and felony riot charges related to the beating of a pickup truck driver in downtown Portland. Video of that assault went viral and brought a new wave of scrutiny to the Portland protest. It was also used as a part of a misinformation campaign, which claimed the victim had died or was in a coma. The victim, however, recovered from his injuries, which included broken ribs, bruising, eye damage. Days after the video went viral, Love turned himself into the police. He has since apologized to the victim, expressed remorse for his actions during his sentencing. 
New research suggests that large eastern Oregon trees are leading the fight against climate change. The study by the journal Frontiers in Forests and Global Change, we know you get that journal, it's on your night table, add to the growing consensus in climate research. It shows that larger trees capture far more carbon than little ones. And not just in ratio to their size. As trees grow, they sequester carbon in their trunks and roots. Wider trees, as a result, capture an outsized proportion of carbon. The study found that only 3% of trees in eastern Oregon's federal forests are 21 inches around or larger, but that small group of trees accounts for 42% of the carbon stored in those forests. As a result, those big trees are critical to the forest's ability to curb climate change. The study complicates an effort by the U.S. Forest Service to allow the cutting of more larger trees. Currently, trees that big, 21 inches or larger, are strictly off-limits for harvesting. That rule, known as East Side Screens, was established in the 90s to encourage a mix of young and old trees. Forestry experts are now concerned that the hard limit is increasing the risk of wildfires. The long-term goal is to allow the cutting of some large trees in order to better protect older trees that happen to be smaller. As a result, they hope to make those forests more resilient to wildfires overall. Now ecologists are forced to juggle two directly competing goals, preventing wildfires, which are worsened by climate change, and preventing the release of even more carbon into the climate, which could worsen wildfires. The lead author of the new study, David Mildrexler, said, thinking about the role large trees play right now is absolutely important. Proposal to revise the Eastern Screens policy currently under review. The number of alternatives being offered by the Forestry Service ain't science great. Some good news. Oregon State University reported record enrollment for its fall semester despite the pandemic. University and college enrollment has been down across the country, but OSU has managed to set a new record for total enrollment. Overall, 33,359 students enrolled in Oregon State this fall, marking an increase of 1.8% over last year. OSU credits their eCampus program for some of that success, noting a large increase in transfer students from other community colleges and universities. The total increase in enrollment came despite a decline in students at their main campus in Corvallis, where 937 fewer students enrolled compared to last year. The eCampus students made up for a decline of 937 fewer students enrolled on campus compared to last year. Shout out to higher education. And that is today's Quick 6 Local Rundown. X-Ray. Next up, we have local author Vanessa Veselka, author of Zazen and the Great Offshore Grounds. Vanessa discusses how music impacts her narrative, writing ghost stories, and the questions she is grappling with. Here is Vanessa Veselka. The Portland Book Festival is happening this month. Dozens of writers are doing readings, panels, and workshops online to celebrate everything literary. Joining us today is Portland's own Vanessa Veselka, author of The Great Offshore Grounds. Long listed for the National Book Award in Fiction, The Great Offshore Grounds is an expansive, character-driven story that follows one fragmented family all across the country as they grapple with the tangles of their lives and American history. Good morning, Vanessa. Good morning. Thank you for joining us. Well, thanks for having me. So when COVID hit, you basically had to replan your whole book tour. How did you think about that process? Well, um, so I've been working, uh, I've worked before as a union organizer, and I'm working currently as a union organizer. Mm -hmm. And so I've been really looking forward to taking a break and (laughs) traveling around the country. As you know, um, the novel has a lot of space that it covers uh, in the country. And I was really looking forward to the idea of doing about a 30, 35 date tour um, around. 
And I love meeting people uh, mm-hmm. in that way. Um, and I love traveling. Uh, and none of that happened. <laughs> so, oh, no. so, you know, I was one of the fortunate ones um, because uh, I had two great uh, bookers and, and, and uh, support from Knopf. Uh, in trying to figure this out. And so we decided we would try to do as much of it as we could. So we mapped the, uh, we mapped the tours onto the road trips in the book and wow. did them as a combination of events of, with libraries, with historical societies, with tall ship, uh, the tall ship America, so, you know, and then all the sort of usual suspects of Elliott Bay and Powell's and, you know, McNally Jackson. So it ended up being, a world tour of my living room, mm. which, you know, I'm grateful to have been able to do. And at the same time, you know, it's one of the, in the scope of things, unimportant personal losses of COVID. Oh, well, and it sounds like some silver linings. You were able to, to cover quite a bit of the country just from your living room. That's pretty amazing. Yeah. And I'm hoping to go someday and meet the people that I met online a little mm. bit. Cause, uh, and I think that will also be, you know, for everybody who had a book coming out in 2020, we all mm. share this particular particular thing. And I think that when we get, get out there again and bookstores are open mm-hmm. to meet people, I think it'll be um, especially moving. Yeah, absolutely. Um, this is a novel of hauntings in a lot of ways. The characters are haunted by their own histories, by major and forgotten figures in American history, by versions of themselves that never quite managed to become is this great American novel a ghost story? There's definitely a ghost story element, and it's mm. funny that you mention that because my own, I think most, like most writers, I have my own language for talking to myself. It's how I navigate my own process and talk myself into things like staying in a chair for eight years. Um, and one of the things I've sort of come to about what unifies my work in some ways is I feel like I write American ghost stories. Mm-hmm. And I feel like I do it in nonfiction. <laughs> and I just sort of feel like there's a a quality that I'm always trying to understand about the country that I can't understand in other ways. And I'm, I'm trying to get at something more concrete, but I can't always get there. And mm-hmm. so that sense of haunting and that sense of uh, spook uh, mm-hmm. and that sense of um, uneasiness or the uncanny it, you know, it, it feels like it goes in and out of my work in certain places as I try to get more concrete and fail. Mm. So this this novel, like uh, Zazen, is about characters who are often defined by the ways in which they feel out of control. Where's that balance between marginalization and freedom in those moments? Well, I think um, some of that I draw on just personal experiences and the strangeness of you know, uh, some of it is as simple as the human experience of staying up all night and, break, you know, being 18 or 25 or whatever, staying up all night, breaking up with somebody that, you know, uh, spending, you know, half your night in tears, waking up and seeing the sunrise and wondering, like, why you feel more yourself and better in that moment at the same time you feel so horrible and alive, you know? Mm-hmm. It's that kind of... Um, all night long feeling that uh, where you discover something indestructible in yourself mm. and, and you realize, you know, so, so that some of that is, is wanting to capture some of those feelings uh, that to me 
are the high points of being alive in strange ways. Uh, but that question of marginalization and powerlessness and freedom is, well, what do you have that you can liberate yourself when when things are when you don't have control about a whole bunch of things, what do you take control of? Mm-hmm. And some of what we take control of is the myths or the stories we tell ourselves. That's an attempt at controlling what we cannot control. We can, you know, if we reframe it, does it become this? If we if we retell it, if we edit it, if we turn it into a calcified story, does it become that? And so I, that's some of the things that I try to understand and play with, but I want all my characters to have a shot at liberation, um, even if it's a really failed, messed up version of it. Mm. Now, you were a musician in Seattle in the 90s. Has music shaped the way you think about narrative when writing fiction? Oh, yeah, absolutely. In, in a multitude of ways. Uh, I think from the beginning, the way I, I write uh has been formed sonically. Uh, I, mm. I read things out loud. I'm looking for rhythms. Uh, I'm looking for, you know, really more consonants, how they knock against each other in a certain way, how over a paragraph something shifts or moves in a certain way, and also at the chapter level. So there's a, there's a way that I think of rhythm, and I can tell when the rhythm is off, you know, off from my aesthetic, not everybody else's. But I can tell when a rhythm is off by just reading it uh, and or hearing it in my head. And I, I think of voice in work as a polyphonic thing. I think that, you know, people talk about all different kinds of voice, character voice, authorial voice. And I think of authorial voice as sort of a, a grounding aesthetic more than I think of it as um, a tone or tick of style but a combination of what it, what are your obsessions and interests, what are your aesthetics, that to me is voice. And then character voice, I, I feel like it has to be polyphonic, even if it's one character, that there's a voice we have for being resilient, there's a voice we have for internal implosion, I guess that's redundant, uh, a voice we have for um, tenderness and rage, you know, and that they have different rhythms. Mm-hmm. Uh, so... Yeah, uh, I think it affected that. I think it also really affected how I how I encountered the literary world and some of the confusions for me. Um, musicians I found are, in many ways, you know, more direct and have more of a sense of ownership over their work sometimes. Uh, like, <laughs> back off, man, this is my thing, mm. is, is a very normal musician reaction <laughs> to somebody else's opinions. <laughs> and... Uh, and I think in the writing world, there's sometimes it, it can be so lonely that sometimes people crave and seek out other opinions just for company. And sometimes that brings in uh, that, that just brings in a cast of thousands that like can be can interrupt the creative process. So mm. I think I think that's what I, that's what how I think music has affected it. Yeah. Wow. Zazen paints a really ambivalent picture of Portland as this changing, gentrifying place full of complacency, but moments, but moments of real beauty, too. But Della, the main character, refuses to give up on it. She judges all the people who don't want to stay and fight. Have your feelings about Portland evolved since you wrote that novel in 2011? Um, well, Portland's 
changed yeah. uh, in a lot of ways, and in some ways not. Uh, some of the patterns, uh, dominant patterns I was writing about have continued and deepened, and, and in some ways, uh, entire uh, swaths of what was there before have disappeared. Uh, I would say that it wasn't just Portland I was writing about. Mm. I have lived over and over in neighborhoods uh, where gentrification was occurring because those were frequently the neighborhoods with the, you know, in the beginning, the cheaper rents and artists move. And there's this really tricky interaction between how artists participate in gentrification and what choice they have or don't have about that. So I was writing about, um, you know, the neighborhoods in New York that I knew. I was writing about the neighborhoods in, you know, about the mission. I was writing about neighborhoods in Seattle. Like I, I was mm. going for something that, while it feels a lot like Portland, Portland felt a lot to me like patterns that I had seen in multiple places. And there was, it felt like there was an inevitability to the movement of it. Um, and one of the things that came up with that is I was talking to a, um, an agent who represents um, largely uh, writers of color and very prominent writers of color. And one of the things she said to me about that book was, you know, because that book has a lot to do with writing about whiteness. Um, but one thing she said is she goes, I can't believe that you wrote this in 2011. It completely, you know, predicts Black Lives, you know, Black Lives Matter movement and like what starts to, you know, and I was like, yeah, because it was obvious. Mm. Meaning like those fissures are deep and old and ancient and, you know, what are you in ancient in terms of this country? Oh, what are you going to do? Um, and so I think a lot of the concerns in Zazen, uh, there is definitely a critique of the left and uh, racism uh, and sort of left racism, exoticism and you know, sort of permanent uh, Shibli yoga fantasies. Mm. Anyway. You've said that both of your no novels came out of free writing where you were meditating on a single question. What are some of the questions that you're grappling with right now? Oh, I feel mm -hmm. like, and I know I've said this before, but I, it becomes more true to me. I think that the more you write, the more you realize that you circle certain topics and subjects. Mm -hmm. You know, for me, I, I just, I think I, I'm, I'm constantly asking does does America, does the American project work? <laughs> you know, can it, where are we at in it? How do we know when it's done? How do we know when it's, how to shape it? You know, what's true? I, so those things run through everything I write in some ways, but I think as far as where my questions are now, after you write something that you spend eight years writing, or after I do, there's this wonderful and lovely emptiness of questions. <laughs> <laughs> as as sort of the uh, the burned stubble begins to regrow in the field, um, and and I'm more in that space. You know, I'm I'm more focused right now on organizing, uh, and uh, a lot of my creativity is going into trying to figure out, uh, you know, organizing in in healthcare and where we're at, um, and that feels really good to be in a place where I'm not just I, I think it's a time where we have to be civic um, and and I'm glad to be in that. And at the same time, I'm waiting for the new questions to come up uh, about how much change is possible and where freedom is, you know. Mm -hmm. Wow. Vanessa, where can people find out more about you and your book? 
Well, uh, I am Vanessa Veselka on Twitter. That's the easiest way to sort of track me, although I'm, I'm, I'm not some genius on social media. I, same on Instagram. Uh, I have a blog, VanessaVeselka.com, that I update uh, some, but not like, you know, I, I don't really have blogger personality. So, uh, I mean, the best way to find out more is probably, you know, check out my work, see if you like it, if you like it, follow me in other places, and uh, and uh, I guess that's it. I mean, I wish I had, if I was some great social media person uh, who said super entertaining things all the time, uh, that would be great, but I cannot claim that, <laughs> so... Well, Vanessa, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Thank you for having me. Thanks to Vanessa for joining The Local, and thank you for listening to The Local, your hometown, in about 30 minutes. Thanks for subscribing and giving a five-star review, and thank you, Democracy. Talk to you tomorrow. X-Ray.